0: Welcome once again to the Wheelhouse Podcast. I'm Aaron Goldsmith, as always, joined by Mariners general manager Jerry Dipoto and Gary Hill. Uh, Jerry, it's great to see you. How are you, my friend?
1: Uh, it's, it's been it's great to see you. I, I'm great. I'm trucking up and down between here and Tacoma, watching taxi squad games and, and big league ball games either live or on TV. We're, we're getting our fill. This this 25 game stretch has been uh, has been it's made up for a lot of the things that we've missed in the in the months prior.
0: Absolutely. Well, uh, worth noting, this is our first Wheelhouse podcast of 2020 for Root Sports. So if you're new to this whole, wait, it's a podcast and it's on TV, but it's also on my phone or my device, the way it works is we go for normally like about an hour. And the reason I'm kind of sheepish to say that is because I'm afraid that at any moment, Jerry's going to realize that and go, why am I talking to these clowns for an hour? But we go for almost an hour with Jerry on every Wheelhouse podcast. We can't put all of that on TV. So we cut it down to about 30 minutes to put it on the TV side. You can always hear the full, unedited conversation on well, wherever you get your podcast. So that's how this whole Wheelhouse Podcast on TV thing works. Uh, Jerry, this has been a, a pretty exciting past few days around Major League Baseball. As we look back to yesteryear, and Major League Baseball is celebrating the centennial, 100-year celebration of the Negro Leagues, which, first of all, is terrific to see baseball doing that. There's so many stars from years gone by that deserve so much more uh, brighter light shine on them than what has been historically speaking. What is it that uh, catches your eye, your ear, your memories about guys like Buck O'Neill and the Negro Leagues? Because you've had some experiences.
1: Well, you know, first I'll say that it's it's a sad. Part of American history that the Negro Leagues existed, but the the fact that they did, and we're celebrating the great players that that made the Negro Leagues, you know, phenomenal during the especially from the 1920s through the 1940s, where so many of the great players that would transition to Major League Baseball, you know, starting with Jackie Robinson, but you know, adding guys like Monty Irvin and Larry Doby and and Satchel Paige, who I, I think in addition to the fact that he debuted as I think a forty-two or forty-three year old, the fact that he actually pitched in the big leagues in his mid-fifties and, <laughs> and threw three shutout innings for the A's in the nineteen-sixties was was pretty phenomenal as well. So I, I, the great players, the allure of the the Negro leagues, and and you know I'll say good for the Baseball Hall of Fame that in the early two thousands through two thousand six or thereabout, they they went back and it kind of posthumously inducted a lot of of people that were associated with the Negro leagues into the hall of fame, which was long overdue. And for me, the one they missed was Buck O'Neill, who might be the, the, greatest ambassador that baseball has had in my lifetime just that no one loves it more no one talked about it in a more passionate way and frankly if you are there and on the receiving end of Buck O'Neill's stories you'll remember for the rest of your life that that experience he was just a phenomenal guy with a great history in the game spanning from playing with the greatest players in Negro League history and being one of them to becoming the first African-American coach in Major League history for the Cubs back in the 50s to signing great players like Ernie Banks and, and then becoming an ambassador for the game, key to the development of the Negro League Hall of Fame in Kansas City. And I, I could go on for, for a long time about Buck and the impact he's had on the game, and I'm sad that he didn't make the, the cut. Hopefully it's something they'll revisit because I think it's a, a bit of an injustice to baseball.
0: Can you tell us about your experiences sharing time with Buck O'Neill?
1: Yeah, you know, the, the, I met Buck in the 1990s when I was a player. And, and uh, in the late 90s, as it came up on you know, the end of my career and in 2000, during the 2000 season, as you may recall, I, I missed a lot of that season with uh, herniated discs in my neck that required a spinal fusion and uh, i was i was out and oftentimes when the team traveled i would stay at home and go through my rehab like you know injured players do and a friend of mine a guy by the name of jay sanford uh, who is part of the the saber group in denver of which i was the only card carrying member who is an active major league player which is what a nerd yeah (laughs) sad and geekily true uh but we were. I love the the group. I love talking with uh, with people who had that kind of passion for baseball history. And Jay called me, and there was a, a celebration of Negro League history, particularly the the Negro League players who had come from in and outside of Denver. And they, they were they were gathering as a group. And the keynote speaker at an event they were having was going to be Buck O'Neill. And and, uh, and he asked if I would like to, to come have dinner with him. And I said, better. Why don't you just bring Buck over to the house? And, you know, he can come see the, the, the homage to, to baseball that existed in my, my basement and, uh, and, and just share a night. And, you know, Buck came over with a handful of, of former Negro League greats that night. And it's, it's something, again, I'll never forget. And I'd met him on a couple of occasions, but nothing quite as intimate as this. And uh, he spent the evening, which wound up turning into uh, quite the comedy. I, I, I'll be happy to share some of the comedy with you, but uh, it, telling stories, looking through a lot of you know artifacts, memorabilia, some of which was related to the, or most of which actually was related to the Negro Leagues, and uh, and I'll and I'll fill you in on all the detail. But it was. A phenomenal night that I'll never forget. My kids to this day remember for other reasons, but I'll tell you <laughs> why. And and uh, you know what a gracious man and a great ambassador for the game. And and I, it was uh, it was just a really cool moment in a in a career of cool moments. But a, a, a moment that I'll never forget.
0: Well, you provided us with this picture of you, Buck, and Byron Johnson, and we see the neck brace that you were referring to the surgery. So this really you were really doing some serious rehab work. Uh, can you tell us about uh, a little bit what was said that night, the stories, just the overall feel of what would have to, a once in a lifetime experience?
1: So I, I guess first I'll say that my, as we prepared, because this all happened kind of as a pop-up thing, you know, Jay called me in the morning and asked what I thought, what I would what I like to go to dinner with him? And I said, sure, but how about you guys come here? And, and we, we agreed to do that. Well, along the way, my, my wife at the time was a volunteer at the kids' school, and you know she was a, a board member and a volunteer who would help out over at the school, roughly at the drop of a hat. Well, two hats dropped at once. She agreed to go help at the school on the same night that I agreed to have you know Buck and these former Negro League stars and and Jay come over to the house, and uh, the the Tammy went to, to the to the school. I have three kids. I'm in a halo, <laughs> and and I, I just had a spinal fusion, and somehow I got to get the barbecue rolling so that we can you know feed this group of people who's coming to the house. So flash forward, uh, the the kids are with me and they're all you know under 10. This is uh, at the time my oldest was eight years old and uh, and my youngest was three, and I've got the three kids under 10 and I'm trying to get the barbecue started and and I can't get it rolling and and uh, you know, I, I, as you might do, I, I looked inside the, the pilot light hole. As I would suggest not doing, uh, you should not look inside the, the pilot light hole and then push the button <laughs> w- with your face in front of the hole and hold it down. And I definitely wouldn't do that while you were back up against a, a stone pillar that supports your house with a neck that doesn't turn left or right. <laughs> so I, I, I got blasted with this, this blue flame that came you know lurching out of the the pile hole uh blew up my face singed off my eyebrows uh sent me careening back off of the stone pillar that that held up the house and I'm, I'm laying on the deck with the you know with my neck brace staring up at my middle daughter who was sucking her thumb at the time she took her thumb out of her mouth and she said daddy what'd you do and uh, I said, I believe I burnt my hair off, <laughs> and you know, I got up and shortly thereafter, you know, Jay and Buck and and the crew, you know, they're at the door, and uh, shortly thereafter, Tammy came walking through, and she's she said, "What's that smell?" I said, "I, I believe that's what's left of my eyebrows," <laughs> and uh, you know, the rest of the night was a joy, and you know, we started, we 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 had burgers and 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 the the normal barbecue fare, and went down. And like I said, my, you know, my basement was, was kind of an homage to baseball history and a lot of collectibles ranging from autographed balls, books, you know, photos, hats, you name it, uh, artifacts from way back. I mean, dating back to the 1870s and, and, uh, you know, one of the nuances, which i talked to you about was, was that, uh, the players you know pastor or former who came through would always sign and leave a message on on the doors or on a wall and and that became a real calling card as well and and you know Buck and Byron were the first ones down and Buck started rummaging through shelves and looking at some of you know including uh, a, a series of shelves that were dedicated to the Negro Leagues and 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 he pulled out a game card that was from uh, the Bob Feller uh, Bob Feller Satchel Page barnstorming tour, so it was the actual you know the, the the game sheet the 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 card, and it had Bob and Satchel on the front. It was it was as as good a condition as it could possibly be in, and like a tear started rolling down his face. And he said, oh my God, I haven't seen something like this in so many years. And he started flipping through it. You know, it's like a mini yearbook. And and he started flipping through it and and he found himself in the book. And then he started pointing to each of the pictures of the the former players, you know, and, and it ranged from guys like Cool Papa Bell and Satchel Page to to Buck Leonard, who was one of the the older players on the team, and, and and he said this was this was an unbelievable time. He took the card and then he went and sat on the couch and spent the next three hours telling us stories about kind of that barnstorming tour, playing with Bob Feller, some of the the stories that I'll, I'll keep in the coffer about Satchel Page and being Satch's roommate during those years, how Satchel uh, came up with the name Nancy, which was which was given to him in some part on his own and in some part by by Buck. Uh, that is uh, probably a story left for a different time, but. Unbelievable stories that for three hours just had us all captured. And, you know, at one point he got up and he said, he said, all right, I'm done. I'm 76 years old and I got to go to the bathroom. <laughs> and uh, what, what, what a joy it was to sit there. And uh, I've I've never forgotten that moment. My my daughters still remember the, the group over at the house. And, and it turned into what you might expect a family reunion would look like for players who spent such a meaningful part of their lives together and never really had the the opportunity to sit in that kind of forum where there were no expectations, there was nobody, you know, waiting to kick them out. They would just get another burger and a, and a Coke and, you know, t- please tell us some more and, you know, from one-on-one confrontations with Satchel Paige and Ralph Kiner versus you know, or what it was like to face Bob Feller when, when he was the you know uh, supposed to be the fastest pitcher in the world. And although Buck would tell you that, that Bob Feller was not fa- faster than Satchel Paige, so it was uh, it was a, an awesome experience. And then many years later, when, well, I shouldn't say many, you know, four or five years later, as my playing career has now ended and I'm in scouting. You know, Buck would always position himself. He had a front row seat at Kauffman Stadium, and it just so happened when I when I went to work for the Red Sox in 2002, uh, where uh, end of O2, so oh304 um O4, at Kauffman Stadium, I made that my home park. Moved to Kansas City, and I got to spend you know roughly 40 of my scouting days per year sitting next to Buck O'Neill watching games and just listening to his insights. And uh, what a great part of my life just to get to hear him and his passion for the game. And and to the day he died, he was as sharp as you can possibly be in his ability to identify game situations, players and their tools, and talk about it in the clearest way you could imagine.
0: All that is just just—it's pretty mind-blowing, Jerry, to be honest with you. I mean, to your point earlier, he is an absolute icon and a legend in the game. This has to be one of the greatest people that you've ever been around in baseball. Is that fair to say?
1: I, I've I've been around some great people, <laughs> and and which is a, a really you know a, a blessing I've had in my life. But nobody who ever made you feel the way that Buck O'Neill made you feel. You know, he he's just, he had a way about him that made you feel like you were incredibly special, that you were the best player person that, that ever lived, and, and he could celebrate you in a way that that it's it, if you had to pick the type of personality to to usher young players into the big leagues and I, I thought about this a lot over the years especially in the the role i'm in now the the characteristics and the traits that that buck had they were perfect for to i guess embodying the traits or characteristics that you would want in the first African-American coach, the guy who was going to build a bridge for, for future staff members, you know, among the African-American community and, and to really uh, embrace the role of being the, the father figure for young players. He, he did all that so well. And, and, you know, what a phenomenal career. And I think he's one of the very, you know, I, I think of Buck O'Neill. I think of guys like Joe Torrey, who's now in the Hall of Fame, but Gil Hodges. You know, guys who had so much success in a variety of different roles, and and their their baseball lives transcend just one thing they did, and they became about many things they did. And I think Buck O'Neill might be on the top of that mountain of the you know recognize all the things that they did, and and pay tribute to what he means to the game because I think it's he was a huge huge factor for many people for decades in baseball and and I and I really do think that that he should be honored for it
0: I gotta ask Jerry the picture that you showed us in the background is one of those autographed doors that you spoke about and the walls have autographs and messages on them when you sold the house Jarrett what what'd you do with the doors
1: Took the door with us. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we, we did. We actually had, there were three doors like that. And, uh, you know, the, the one that is in the picture that I showed you was actually the third of the three. So that's the one with that, that, that had just started the year that, that Buck came to the house. And, and uh, we actually had, our next house was, was a, uh, a, a home that we had the basement built out to, to house our collection. And we had doorways built and and modified to make sure that the doors that the doors actually fit in the you know the door jam so uh for three houses, we were able to take those doors with us and, and kind of build a place to put the doors. And then finally, they wound up in a storage space somewhere, and and unfortunately, they're no longer with us. But they were they were treats all to themselves. And the stories that those doors told with, you know, the, the messages that were written about what people were seeing in the moment, what they were feeling, favorite artifacts in the room, or, you know, just things that were maybe personal to me in a, in a moment were really cool.
0: You've talked about this before, but... Your collection got so big that you eventually had it uh, essentially professionally auctioned off, is this correct?
1: Yeah, actually, it wasn't. Uh, some of it was auctioned off. The, uh, there's, it was a goal of mine from dating back to when I was a kid to, to get an autograph from every player that I ever played. And, you know, bold, I came pretty close. Yeah, that, <laughs> is, uh, yeah. that is a lofty it, goal. No, it's not
0: lofty. It's, it's insane. <laughs> yeah, it was insane. I mean, it, there was
1: a period of time where, you know, if you remember, and I know, you know, this to, to, your, uh, to your roots in, in St. Louis Cardinaldom, I will, you know, the sporting news, the, the sporting news was the ticket. So, you know, for years and years, they were the the beginning and the end of baseball uh, through the media. And... Like when, when I signed my first professional contract, the, the, the shortly after signing that professional contract, we got a, a contract from Topps Baseball. And, you know, we, we signed a Topps Baseball card contract as a 21-year-old. And that stayed on file for all the years that you played. And that's a process that began back in 1951, uh, just prior to, to Topps going, you know, full bore in 52. And, and you know, the prior to that, the only company that did a mass signing with players was the sporting news and every player had to sign a a release for the sporting news to release their images, you know, whether it be some kind of photo of them or or, or use them uh, legally covering themselves for using their images and whatever they were doing in their marketing and advertising and every player signed them. Well, in the late 90s, early 2000s, the sporting news actually auctioned off all of those those forms you know the, the 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 contracts and you know that was my that was my big ticket Like until that point I thought ah this is fruitless I'm never going to get beyond and then I hit I hit the motherland <laughs> and uh you know I spent roughly a year's pay I think and, and I bought them all and and uh, and had had autographs from guys who played, you know, five and six games in the 20s and and tragically died, you know, shortly thereafter. But they signed because that's that was the, the very first. And, you know, my favorite of them was a was a player named Pickles Dillhoffer. Oh, uh, yeah. No, <laughs> we're yeah, big into big Pickles, one. Yeah, man. Yeah. yeah, big one. So so, I mean, it was so it wait, was a goal about, of mine. You
0: have a Pickles Dilhoffer autograph.
1: Yeah, don't anymore. That was one that was was sold How off. How'd you but, get rid of Pickles? <laughs> it it seems like a crazy thing to do, but he didn't sign it to me, so I, I just <laughs> had. we had. Uh, you know, it did. Our, our the collection got so big, and you know, it sounds absurd, but we actually had to keep moving into bigger houses, <laughs> so there was somewhere to yeah. to keep it. And. And then when I started scouting, and we were mobile, you know, we we, we became a, a little bit more of a transient family. We had lived in one place for a number of years, and then we had to start popping because the, that was what life on the road provided you. Is you know a, another team, another opportunity, and and moving through the, the you know the front office food chain, it it, it forced us to be a little bit more. Uh, I guess. Uh, suitcase and go and you know one of the things I had to think long and hard about was how do we keep building bigger houses do we just set up and make this our you know the home shop and instead, I, I, I sold off you know the the Hall of Fame version or you know, portion of it. I sold to a private collector, uh, and then the rest we auctioned off. And and uh, well, I shouldn't say the rest, 80 percent of the rest. I still have you know a, about a quarter of, of what I collected, that or the things that meant the most to me, and 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 I guess had a, a lasting impact on on my my career the the, you know the the people that that were connected to it but so much cool stuff and and for years when when players and and former players were coming through Denver for anything whether it be an autograph show or you know or coming in to play the Rockies there would routinely be three or five people that wanted to swing by the house and just spend you know spend an afternoon looking at what was down there.
0: That's incredible man good for you. That was really cool. That's awesome. We'll switch gears a little bit to the uh, Mariners. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that. <laughs> I guess so. Um, boy, a lot going on with your ball club right now, Jerry. When you look at Justice Sheffield right now, this is a guy that you went out and you acquired from the Yankees. Uh, we saw him last year a little bit, mostly in A. had a hard time kind of controlling the heartbeat a little bit. Now, Jerry, at the time of this recording, his past two starts, six innings apiece, picks up his first major league win, one earned run total, one walk total. Uh, what is it that you're seeing that you like the most out of what Justice Sheffield is doing?
1: Well, I mean, not shockingly, it's been a, a maturation process that we're seeing. And these last two starts, or even three, but you could date back to, to spring training in Peoria. He was excellent in Peoria. He was excellent here in summer camp in Seattle, and he's roughly been excellent so far. He, he got off to a little bit of a rocky start in his you know, first start or so. Uh, since then, he was roughly one pitch away from an equally as impressive outing against the Oakland A's, and these last two have been phenomenal against really good hitting lineups. So the Rockies and Houston. We're seeing a more confident strike thrower. He has learned to to control his own emotion on the mound, and right now we're seeing the 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 elevation to what we've always believed justice could be. And uh, you know, in the early going here, I think. 20-ish innings into his season, he's among the best pitchers in baseball right now in, in, in terms of fielding independent ERA, and the underlying data suggests that what he's doing is very sustainable. And the, the key ingredient, especially these last two starts, which has been dominant, is throwing strike one. His, I, I think the Rockies, he didn't run a 2-0 count uh, at any point in the game, which is the first time he's ever done that in a professional start, as we have tracked uh, and in this last start it was equally as impressive against two deep hitting lineups you know to to not run a 2-0 count against the Rockies and then come just short of 80% first pitch strikes in his in his outing against the Astros what what a phenomenal step forward and it really echoes what we've said many times on this show is that the the potential with so many of these players has always been there and development's not linear different players are going to take a little bit different timeline and and we're still thrilled with where justice is and and feel like he's just scratching the surface of what he's capable of you touch on it a little bit I mean the last three games Rockies Astros A's I mean
0: three of the top scoring teams in baseball when you evaluate how much do you take into consideration opponents and kind of stretches like that that
1: you line up those three going into it and it you know it's a big challenge you we knew our schedule the way it laid out especially the first half of the schedule it was rather unforgiving with teams like that mm-hmm. you know and 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 there's still a few to come like starting with the Dodgers <laughs> who, <laughs> who are really good and it's uh you know the the first half of our schedule was incredibly difficult but to see a young pitcher like justice really start to elevate and 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 get over that hump we feel like it's been a real move forward for him, not just, you know, two random games in an otherwise, you know, I guess interesting season. He has really taken a big step forward as a major league starting pitcher, knowing that A, he can make the ball move in different ways than he ever has before, which, you know, credit to him and to our pitching group who've done a phenomenal job once they put that two seamer in his hand down in Peoria. We've seen his average velocity drop by about a mile an hour because he's throwing two seamers that move and his ability now to locate it is considerably ahead of where he was. And these last two outings against awesome hitting lineups, he's been able to go back to incorporating his four-seamer from time to time and start running that 93-95 up there to change an eye level and then get back to his other pitches. We're also seeing the ongoing improvement with his changeup, which was a real weapon for him against the Rockies. And I thought against the Astros, he made even more use of it. And the action on that pitch has come so far. And we always know he he has the swing and miss slider. So... So thrilled with the with the progress that he's making, and the fact that he's doing it against the best hitting lineups in the league is only more of a reinforcement of of how much we should be excited by what's happening with Justice Sheffield. Uh, Jerry,
0: you, you mentioned the uh, without a two zero count, a couple of starts ago, and the increased command and control. Uh, how is it that you assess and then actually coach command? Because for some guys. I don't know how you look at them and say, he's not commanding it now, but if we do this, he can command it, versus if from a scouting perspective, listen, this guy just won't be able to command anything. I mean, how do you teach something so basic as that, that is such something that so many pitchers chase after their whole career?
1: You know, it's it's funny. Some guys are not the greatest athletes. Uh, and historically, you know, pitchers have always been deemed the non-athlete. I take, you know, exception to that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I Pitchers have always been deemed the non-athletes on the team. If you have a good athlete, Justice Sheffield is a good athlete. If you have a Marco Gonzalez is a really good athlete. These guys are athletic pitchers. And, and if you have a good athlete, there's always a chance that, that that command will come because they will learn to smooth out and repeat the delivery. The, the ability to command the baseball is all about the, the repetition or quality of the repetition in your delivery. The consistency with which your hand releases the ball in time. You always wanna be in that same window. Greg Maddox did it as, as as well as anyone I've ever seen and, and he always wanted to be in that in that same window when he's releasing his pitches, you know. Now we call it tunneling. It it was it was always called the, the, your release window, and and I think that's what you're starting to see with Justice Sheffield. I think that's what gives us hope with athletic young pitchers. It's part of the reason why we were intrigued by Johan Ramirez. You know, uh, right now I wouldn't consider Johan a polished commander of the baseball. That's just not his his present gig. But he's got awesome stuff, and if we can take what is a really good athlete, because Yo is a good athlete, and give him the ingredients that that he can repeat and we got to get the stride online we've got to get them moving toward home plate and consistently repeat a hand position now you've got a chance and you know when you've got stuff like johan or justice sheffield you don't need to be perfect it's a you know it we can live with something 75 percent perfect because their stuff can be overwhelming if they're in the right area
0: so with that in mind, Jerry, what does your four walks per nine over the course of your career say about you as an athlete? you
1: feel good about this? I, I don't. I, I, <laughs> yeah. There's a, I, as, as Don Baylor, my, one of my managers in Colorado, once uh, oh, he came running out to the mound at one point. We were in San Francisco. Uh, and I, and I was, th- there's, I was, I was the epitome of a sinker slider guy. I, 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 I threw a lot of pitches down in the zone or under the zone and I wasn't going to be high on strikeouts. I was going to get a ton of ground balls and I was occasionally going to walk a guy. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, Don came out and this was in 1998. He came running out to the mound and, uh, and he said, can you do me a favor? And I will skip the expletives here. He said, can you do me one favor and throw one beepity beep 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 pitch that doesn't bounce before it gets to home plate, and I, and I said I looked at him very calmly and I said, Groove, that's not my thing, man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, and and he said one time, just give me a four seamer. So I, I did. I threw a four seamer and and gave up a homer, and you know, <laughs> but it wasn't a Went right back, yeah, went right back to the sinker and and finished off the game. But you know, it's a it, it is such a much easier game to play when you are athletic, can repeat a delivery. In a, in, a, in a slot and command the strike zone in a meaningful way, especially for a starting pitcher, you—you, uh, you, it's an absolute must. It's really hard to survive in this league unless you can dominate that strike zone in that way.
0: Let's talk about another one of those athletes you just referenced. That's Marco Gonzalez. We, we had an interesting conversation with Scott Service about Marco and his fastball that isn't especially fast. Uh, Marco has been obviously one of the better starting pitchers in the american league for a couple of years at this point with one of these slowest average fastball velocities among major league starters it's in the neighborhood of 88 to 89 he's got the cutter about 85 or so but jerry at least this year in particular so far in Marco's starts his fastball has not been hit much at all and you can say the same thing about the cut fastball which kind of leads to the question of, in this era of ever increasing velocity, how is Marco not just surviving but actually thriving with uh, that not that much heat up on the mound?
1: All right, real estate, location, location, location. It is a, uh, and Marco is among the best in the business at, at locating, limiting the the traffic, and not putting extra runners on. And he's going to give up a homer, you know, and. The players or pitchers like Marco Gonzalez have existed in every generation that we've been alive, and they will continue to to exist. The guy who is not going to overpower you with stuff but has a mix of pitches. In Marco's case, you've got a fastball, a curveball, a cutter. You've got a changeup, and he can use them in any count, and he can locate all of them. And, you know, I I think that is uh, – it's that type of pitcher. You know, he comes from, let's say, the Tom Glavin family tree. Uh, where you know maybe when Tom was young in the in the early '90s uh, he could bump a, a 92, but for the most part he was going to pitch at 88 to 91, and which is right about where Marco sits. and And he's got that great feel, a, re- a repeatable delivery. He locates. He can locate in the zone or just off the plate. He can change eye level and get back under. He can mix pitches and be unpredictable in his sequencing. and And I, it's really the art of pitching. and And it's where it's one of the things that I think is incredibly underrated the downside is that that you could come up with 20 pitchers who have a skill set that would enable them to do that and not every one of them is going to have the savvy and ability to execute it like Marco does and and I think that's the ingredient and you know when we acquired Marco we had reason to believe that he had the the I guess the 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 feel for the game, the nuanced understanding of pitch sequencing, and 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 overall pitchability to execute this type of style, we didn't expect that he was going to be a guy pumping mid 90s, and and he's returned on every bit of that belief and tenfold. He's he's been one of the most underrated pitchers in the American League for the last three years. It goes on. Uh, he is he is steady. He provides innings. He doesn't walk them. He gives you a chance to win virtually every time out. And. You know, you can't. I'm sure that at some point it will happen, but I can't remember the time where Marco went out there and it was just a non-competitive outing, which is going to happen for even the best of pitchers. And eventually it will grab him, but he has been incredibly consistent in his ability to manage the strike zone, sequence his pitches in such a way that on a given night, he looks like Randy Johnson, even though the ball is not 98 miles an hour.
0: Even though the results are what you thought they would be when you acquired him, is he going about getting the results in a different manner? And I, I ask that because you know when, when that trade happened, at least for people in, in our profession, it was, hey, here's a fairly soft tossing lefty with a great changeup. But now it's, here's the guy with the 88-mile-an-hour fastball, and the cutter has taken over to such prominence for Marco. He still has the changeup, of course, but it seems like the cutter has been uh, and a, such an effective pitch that we didn't even see initially. Part of that was because of the Tommy John, but was this kind of the path to get to the success that you thought he would have, or is it a little different?
1: It's a, really it's just sticking with a, a, a player. And, and you know, we saw Marco a lot as a as a amateur at Gonzaga. We we knew uh, it, Marco was about as high profile a high school pitcher as you can be coming out of the Rocky Mountain states. Pitched in four straight, you know state finals i mean he was always the premier pitcher in the state he'll tell you he won four state finals (laughs) there's there's that too (laughs) so you know it's a we have seen marco uh, and and his dad is a long time you know member of the baseball community you know former player current pitching coach so Marco was not an unknown commodity. So we've had eyes on him virtually forever, for as long as he's been pitching, and we watched this all evolve. Well, at Gonzaga, you know whether it was his his four seam fastball or a four seam fastball that would occasionally cut for him, you know that was something that that gets in your mind. Like, all right, if if we could add that little cut and get him back to that little cut, so he's got one fastball that's here and then another fastball that's just right there. Sometimes at the speeds these guys are moving, even, a, even a, a fastball that is below the major league average is still pretty fast. And when it moves like that to the naked eye, it is really hard to track. And, and you know, Marco with the Cardinals was very much about keeping the ball down and sinking it. As soon as we acquired him in 2017, we gave him a new perspective on what we saw as the potential for him to develop as a pitcher, using all four quadrants of the strike zone, You know, down and away, down and in, up and away, up and in, and then using everything around it with all your pitches. And we really encouraged him to incorporate that cutter. And going into 2018, he did. And uh, in 2018, that cutter was really his signature pitch that got him on the map as a starter. And then he started feeling it. You know, he knew he was good, and you know the fastball location and the changeup quality were always very good. And then somewhere in the the middle of that 18 season, but certainly into 19, really started urging at least to certain hitters in the lineup increased use of the curveball. And you know what you see is that his his three best pitches, which are curveball, changeup, and cutter, and in no certain order have really allowed his fastball to play back up again because it's not being overexposed and his ability to command that pitch I mean you've heard the 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 long time you know baseball adage I ah, could throw it in a teacup Marco really can you know I, he is one of the, the the best locators of a fastball in the league and if you couple that with three solid weapons in the secondary category they're all above average pitches and he locates them as well it's just and, and I think he is He's very, I guess, adjustable or amenable to suggestion. He, it's Any one of those could be turned up or down in the percentage that he's using them based on what we see as a potential avenue for success. And he communicates very well with our scouting and data analysts and, and he looks at the information There aren't a ton of pitchers in baseball, on a a year in year out, there aren't a ton of pitchers in baseball that can take a scouting report with the opposing team and then go execute a plan to each one of those hitters because it requires precision command of multiple pitches. Marco can do that. And it's uh, it's great that he's on our team. I, I love that he's here because he's a great example of what an intelligent approach to the game can really provide.
0: That's a great deep dive on Marco, a guy that we have loved getting to know over the years and obviously has such immense value to the franchise. Jerry, let's uh, turn attention now to what's happening in Tacoma. You were just down there today prior to our recording. Sounds like you're down there often. There's a a lot of great things happening that we don't always get to see unless uh, somebody takes a video and puts it on Twitter. Uh, So with your eyes, Jerry, what's going on in Tacoma right now?
1: uh well today i was working on my tan (laughs) uh (laughs) uh, it is it, it was pretty warm down there today but the you know annie mckay chris negron who are running the program down there the coaching staff every day they're out there Roughly eight o'clock in the morning, going through normal training routines and almost like a spring training program, where we're working on refining skills, and then we, we play a taxi squad game uh, or a simulated game. Uh, it would be the better way to reference it. Three four times a week, uh, we had one today. We'll have one again tomorrow. We'll have one on Saturday. Uh, it's it's just constantly trying to get the the uh, maximize the the reps that the the young players are getting and. You might get like today, you know, we got five at bats for, for each of our players. And, and if you're down there, if we're playing a, a 67 day season or whatever it is, and we're able to to generate 20, you know, plate appearances a week, that is so much better than the alternative, which was players sitting at home, not getting the opportunity and every day. They're seeing, you know, this morning these guys saw Kendall Graveman. They saw Brandon Williamson, who was filthy. They saw Aaron Fletcher, who's got really good stuff, really good. Tomorrow they'll see Juan Then, They'll see Isaiah Campbell. The day after that it's Logan Gilbert and George Kirby. I mean, guys with real weapons. And it is forcing our, our hitters to focus and pay attention. And and the good thing for us is there is a 100% chance we're going to like the outcome. You know, it's, a, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's always good for the Mariners, <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) Whatever happens but there have been guys that have really stood out and you know i would say stock up for so many of the young players in the that are in the camp some of our newest draftees are experiencing professional baseball for the first time in an environment where sometimes your right fielder is you know caesar nicholas (laughs) and and sometimes your first baseman is is a hitting strategist rather than a an actual first baseman but we're doing the best we can based on the the environment that we're playing in and i think the the returns so far have been phenomenal and the growth for some of these players has been great and i think you're starting to see it here as as the big league club you know the the added velocity and pitch development of eric swanson you know we'll get there with the the pitching performance the the, the increased ability to go physically use stuff in a in a big league game that's a huge step. You know, the, the quick step made by Joey Gerber, the, the way these guys are developing in, a, in an environment that didn't scream development is very encouraging to us. I'm pretty fascinated by the consistent matchups that you get. You know, Gilbert and Kelnick, just to
0: take two guys, for example, facing each other consistently and how that can sharpen
1: both skill sets when you have guys at that level facing each other that often. Oh, it really does. And I, and I, oddly, you know, Annie McKay said in the early going, I would have some concern that over the course of, you know, two months or two plus months in this type of format that our guys are going to see each other so much that there is going to be a distinct advantage to the hitter because they saw the pitcher more often. And I said, I, I see it the other way. You are going to force the pitcher to to recreate what he's doing, the way he's sequencing or the way he's shrouding creating deception with his pitches to to avoid a hitter getting too settled in my, my favorite matchups are you know if we watch Jared Kelnick facing Brandon Williamson because it's a it's a left on left matchup it's great for the development of of Jared Kelnick because you're you're facing a lefty who has both mid-90s velocity and a real breaking and ball. And, and he's throwing strikes with both of them. And it's great for Brandon Williamson because he's facing a lefty who, if you make a mistake, it's probably not going to come back much of the time. And, and I think that has been you know it's such a fun part of our day. And I, I say to Justin Hollander, our assistant GM, I say to, to Andy McKay, What we're able to to get out of this is what we're willing to put in, and these guys are crushing it every day, and it has been the highlight of most of my days, just going down and watching how much better our young players are getting.
0: Gary, was it Aaron Fletcher? Yeah. Yeah, Kelnick told us, Jerry, that he he is like 0 for 14 lifetime against fletcher i believe
1: it <laughs> and it's a, and it's and his his batting helmet is probably 0 for 15 <laughs> <laughs> you know but, the best
0: part about that though he tells the story he was in line and he skipped ahead of a guy just cuz he wanted to face fletcher again and get a hit <laughs> i mean to me that tells a lot of the story about Kellnick. It is. He's
1: an intense competitor, yeah. and it it also tells you a little bit about Fletch. You know, the left on left, it it is not a fun at bat for a left hander to face Aaron Fletcher. It's he's got two pitches that are well above average. You know, uh, Joel Furman, Jesse Smith, our analytics department. They have built an in-house system of grading pitches that uses starts with a scale of one hundred. And with Fletch, he's got a changeup and a slider that both register thirty to fifty percent above the average in, in terms of the quality of the pitch. And and he also throws up to ninety-five miles an hour. So it's a it's a really interesting look. And on left-handed hitters, you you can't seem to square them up. The ball just disappears. And he threw again today and and, and again it was you know dynamic against the lefties, you feel like if someone dunks one in, they got really lucky. I don't know if I'd be running for the bat rack, but that <laughs> does I- I explain Kellinick to to a great degree because he's going to do whatever he has to do, make himself uncomfortable as he needs to be to make sure that he winds up coming out on top of the mountain when when the, the story is told, when his career is done. He, he will not have left anything to doubt. Uh,
0: we, I, I got I to gotta put your farm director – to the test here, chair, because I ran into Andy McKay at the ballpark the other day. He was so masked up, I couldn't even recognize him at first. I had to give him one of these the double look, and it was Andy, and we love running into Andy. He's always uh, great to talk with, gives us such great insight and conversation. He's just a good dude to be around, on top of all that stuff. And we were talking about Tacoma and the, just kind of catching me up to speed with everything, and a, a lot of the offensive prospects came up in conversation, and he, he started to really gush about Noel V. Marte, You're 18, is he 19 yet? 18-year-old? No, right? he's, he's 18. He's still 18? Yeah, All he's right. 18. You're, oh, he's 17 last year. That's right. 18-year-old, basically a high school senior, uh, shortstop that is playing in the States for the first time in his life. And he was telling me about these big home runs that he's hitting. And that led me to ask, he was building these home runs up, Jerry, like, you know, like Ruthian home runs, right? And I said, well, th- he doesn't have the power of, of Kellnick. And he said, oh, no, he's... He's got more raw power than Kelnick, which I kind of did a double take. And then I said, well, he doesn't have more raw power than Julio. And he said, ah, I think Kelnick and Julio are about a push. What? So I am said, you tell, you're telling me that your 18-year-old shortstop has more raw power than Jared Kelnick or Julio Rodriguez. And to that, he said, I'm telling you, if you line those three guys up in BP, Marte's Home runs go the furthest. Which so, is raw
1: power. Which yeah. is
0: raw power. So, uh, I mean, not that I don't believe Andy. I want to believe Andy. Uh, <laughs> he's a
1: believable fellow. He's a believable
0: yeah. guy. He's got honest eyes, you know, very honest eyes. So, I'm going to ask you also honest eyes, Jerry. Is this true?
1: I think there's some truth to it. You know, <laughs> so, the the way I would categorize that is to say that we grade out raw power and we rate out Game power, and okay. you know, if if you're asking me my opinion of the three of them, they're all well above average to elite in their age classes in terms of their raw power. They they all three can hit it off the moon. As an 18 year old, Noelve's pure distance is shocking. Uh, not dissimilar from where Julio was at 18, and and uh, you know the the way raw power translates to game power is a lot like command translates for a pitcher. It's your ability to to repeat a good swing you barrel balls and and it becomes about bat speed you know i I, all three of those guys have incredible upside potential in terms of their power the you know jared Kelnick right now is the most polished in his ability to to repeat a great swing and you know the result may wind up being that he has more home run output than the guy with more raw power because he hasn't yet repeated you know, the swing or learn to control the strike zone because there's an element of that, too. But if you just send them out there to on the driving range and say, <laughs> hey, go hit it over the, the fence, Noel, they can do it with, with anybody. It's, and I have I mean, just since we've been down there, BP, even in games, uh, but in BP, watching them hit balls over the Coors Light Deck at Cheney Stadium, uh, watching them hit balls over the, you know, the Hit It Here van out in left center, pretty routinely and not just one like five in a row <laughs> and he will just deposit them and and i say this in in addition to having what i consider you know 70 80 uh, on, an, on an 80 scale type raw power he's also a 70 runner he's he can really run and it's uh he's physical it, it really looks it's as tooled up a young player as you're going to see he's got he's got three elite level tools and his raw power his running speed and his throwing arm and you know and he's giving us every reason to believe that he can stick at shortstop he's got he's got aptitude and right now as an 18 year old competing with a lot of guys who were premier college players or all-stars at minor league levels or have played in the big leagues already Noelve on the on the field on a given day is among the most talented of the guys out there he's he's my guess is that next year, as a result of this, he is going to be so much further along in his development because of being able to play at this level with this group.
0: That's terrifying and very exciting at the same that time. That is. <laughs> That's incredible. That's a great great job, great find. Jerry, are you prepared for Stump J.D. today?
1: I th- can we do something? Just to ease me back into it, be gentle. What, right? do you think,
0: what do you think the last 30 minutes have been, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> All right. This softball, softball. I pulse. think this is a very – niche question i mean they all are but this one in particular but jerry gary and i were talking about this i think that you're gonna get this okay and the inspiration we normally try to have some type of inspiration or a segue lead in for stump jd on a weekly basis and uh this time around it's because the seager brothers are playing against one another for the first time with the series against the dodgers which got us thinking about brothers in baseball home run in the same game you know, we've the, most recently, the Upton Brothers probably uh, come to mind, but we're, we want bigger than that, Jerry. We want you to tell us the first time, and what we believe is the only time, but definitely the first time in baseball history, that two brothers homered in the same World Series game.
1: Two brothers homered in the same World Series game.
0: I like how he put the pressure on, too, by saying you're going to get it right off the bat. Oh, I know. Uh, I did, that, you like that? that yeah, was, that was good. That was a nice touch. I, th- I, th- I think he'll get
1: it. I'm going to say it's the Wayner brothers for the mm. Pittsburgh Pirates.
0: Uh, would that have been in, like, 1920?
1: R- d- uh, no, it would have been closer to 1930s. But
0: Okay. I-, I believe that they were the first brothers to play in the same World Series. So, nicely jo- done. nice job narrowing it down, but that is incorrect. <laughs> 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 uh, I mean, I'm. I can give you any number of hints.
1: Can it, can you give me a year?
0: Yeah, I feel like that's a. Pretty D- point. All right, don't give me that. Okay. Have, well, it's, it's, okay. Well, how about position? One position. Okay, give me a position. Okay, this is amazing. In the same World Series, they both played third base.
1: Same World Series, they both played third base. Holy moly!
0: One was the MVP that year.
1: This, this seems like it should be a layup in 1964. Oh, that's not fair. That's not true. <laughs> how? how oh yeah, yeah, yeah. How Yeah, yeah, and yeah and there yep. it is, Jerry. There yeah. it is, Jerry. There's you. You got me. You got me. That, uh, that was that was mostly gentle. Thank thank you yeah. thank you.
0: Uh yeah, game seven, game seven, 1964 World Series, Yankees Cardinals. Uh, by the way, in the same game, Mickey Mantle homered off of Bob Gibson. Which is just why awesome. wouldn't you buy a ticket? It's just for that? awesome yeah. to think about that, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Cleet Boyer homered off of Gibson. Ken Boyer, the National League MVP that year, uh, homered off of Steve Hamilton. And the symmetry of them both being the third baseman of the game is also incredible. It's a big day for the Boyer parents. Uh, maybe uh, hopefully at the game that night. So you can, I think, Gary, did we win? Did we? I think we got him on that, right? Of
1: course. Yeah. That's a it's an absolute loss. Yeah. <laughs> <absolutely>. <laughs> <laughs> you had to lead me there every step of the way.
0: All right, but what, I mean, it is it is pretty cool the Seeger thing, and that this is I mean, it's a for mom and dad, right? For baseball as a whole, for the fact that uh, Seeger, our Seeger, has been one of the most productive year in and year out players uh, for a, a decade practically. Corey gets all the limelight because maybe he's taller and he plays in Good. Los Angeles. Uh, but we like our Seager a lot, too. This is, this is going to be a, a lot of fun watching them go head-to-head over the next four games. I,
1: I, I don't know how a parent would react, although I will say, and I'm going to drag it back to my morning experience in Tacoma, <laughs> as I'm watching this morning's simulated game and our hitting strategist, Connor Dawson, is playing right field for, for one of the teams <laughs> because we're a little bit thin in, uh, in how many players are allowed into our, our, our bubble, so to speak, sure. down in Tacoma. But uh, Connor's playing right field and he is our hitting coach for the for this program. And Sam Haggerty hit a home run to right field, and as the ball crossed the over the wall, and and Sam turn, or or Connor turned around and watched it in his in his tracks, tucked his glove under his arm and started applauding ah. the opposing hitter hitting a homer. And I, and I thought Hmm. I'm not entirely sure how the pitcher is going to feel about his right fielder (laughs) applauding the homer by by the, the pitcher. But it is a it's a pretty remarkable thing when when siblings get to play at this level. And then if you consider playing at this level like the Seegers, you know, brothers who've been all stars, who have been celebrated and, you know, they're they're they've whether it's rookie of the years or gold gloves, they've become premium players. And like for the decades before with, you know, with whether siblings or, or offspring, families like the Boons come to mind, the Alou's, the Bells, it's a, you know, that, that forever in, in baseball history, the Bretts, you know, forever they will be remembered, not just for what they did individually, but for what they did together. And that has to be a pretty cool feeling on a holiday when you're sitting around the table.
0: Yeah, it's going to be awesome. We can't wait. We're going to get to some fan questions here to wrap up the show, Jerry. Uh, As you no doubt saw, uh, Baseball America recently moved the Mariners midseason. They did the midseason rankings, I should say, for all organizations. And the Mariners' farm system moved from five to three, so up a couple spots. Very cool. Emerson Hancock, by the way, seems like that's a a major reason why. Top 100 prospect, he gets put into the fold. So the Mariners now have six top 100 prospects for Baseball America. Um, I am partial to this gentleman's name, Stan. Uh, Stan would like to know, Jerry, objectively, if you can do that, objectively, how would you rank your farm system right now compared to the rest of baseball? Do you think three is where it belongs?
1: We think we're in that range. You know, we think that the Rays, the Rays have consistently been among the the top three over these last years, as have the the Padres. I think the Padres are now seeing uh, a lot of their young players graduate to the big leagues and, and inevitably it's it's almost impossible not to see your farm system ebb, you know, down a, a prospect ranking while your major league team starts to surge. Uh Tampa's doing the same thing. Their young players in the big leagues are they're they a phenomenal young team, really one of the best teams in baseball, and all very young. They also have another cachet right behind them that we think is the deepest. So, mm-hmm. uh, we think Tampa has the deepest system. We think right now the top end of the Padres system, with guys like Mackenzie Gore and Luis Patino, to name a few, uh, that like that that kind of. St- potential star power is certainly similar to or on par with ours, but we think we're in the conversation with both those teams. We may not have the 50-player the depth that the Rays have, but we feel like our top 10 prospects compare favorably with either of those two teams and, and the, the potential to walk away from this with, you know, developing star quality performers, we feel like we have, you know, as many or more options than, than those teams do. Uh, they're just a little more famous than ours. <laughs>
0: <laughs> hey, Ryan asks a, an interesting question. We've talked on the podcast already this year, Jerry, about how athletic of a team this is. Am I remembering this, right, that you said recently that this is the most athletic team that you've ever been associated with as a general manager?
1: Without a doubt. Uh, you know, this is, it's always been a dream of mine to have an athletic team because it's not always been a reality. And and I have had some incredibly athletic players on rosters that I've been associated with. But, you know, this from from 1 to 26 is the most athletic group. And it, it stands to reason we're the youngest team in the league. And and we did build this around young athletes. And, and even with this group, uh, as we start to lay the foundation, you know, seeing their athleticism play out every day, watching what they're able to do on it. We, we went from roughly, I can't remember the last time we weren't among the worst base running teams in the league, <laughs> and, and we, we went right to the top, and we, we took the elevator to the top floor. We do have to figure out how to get on base more consistently, but once we get there, we are doing a great job of allowing athleticism to push the game.
0: Well, along those lines, Ryan would like to know, Jerry, do you think the Mariners will be unique as one of the only teams focused on speed and athleticism, or will the rest of Major League Baseball trend in that direction as well?
1: I think the, the rest of the league has been trending in this way, and you know, you're know you seeing it now, even with the way teams are using their DH. You're seeing a lot of the, the premium teams around the league rotating players through the designated hitter position who are considerably more athletic than than the history of the designated hitter would suggest so uh, I, I do think this is something of a push in the league it's it's just hard to find that many premium athletes. When we are sharing premium athletes with other big sports, basketball, football, you know, track, whatever it is, uh, soccer, you know, the, the, there has never been a bigger demand for athletes in the, the professional sports realm. And I think we're we as an organization from the draft, from international space on through our major league trades, particularly over these last two, three years, we have been hyper focused on, on gathering as many high end athletes as we possibly can.
0: Well, Jerry, this has been terrific as always. We, we love when we get to hang out and, t- and talk Mariners and talk baseball a little bit. This one was, uh, I think Gary would agree, especially meaningful given uh, how we began the show, talking about the Negro Leagues and, and Buck O'Neill in particular. So, so thanks for the memories and uh, the stories. And what, Gary, we're thinking August 24th for the next yeah. one of these?
1: line uh, it up again
0: all right august 24th uh with maybe some flex space there the, we're, the, we're aiming for the, august 24th
1: gary was very lj newsome right there <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah oh we've the, heard <laughs> uh, yeah.
0: we heard that he was uh didn't exactly show overwhelming excitement to get the call from his manager <laughs> that he was going to get called up to the big leagues is that a fair scouting report
1: that that is d- welcome to the world of lj newsome he, he's a man of very few words doesn't react very very much at all to most anything which i think tends to give him a great advantage he can control his emotions from from the word go and I I think that's a rare thing with a young player
0: I've told Blowers that when we start traveling again he and LJ are going to be like seat buddies man those two guys (laughs) cut from the same cloth it's gonna be amazing
1: they'll be writing notes to each other sitting in the seats (laughs) next to each other (laughs) sending telegrams
0: (laughs) Jerry this has been great man thanks for hanging out
1: no I enjoyed it guys thanks